Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. We have a very um, distinguished panel here to give their reflections about their relationships with the center and some of the activities they've been involved with um, throughout this period. Uh, we're going to be focusing on the period 1986 to the present, but of course some of the things that we're talking about are continuations of issues, programs, agendas that were uh, part of the original vision of the center. So we'll be um, necessarily linking up with many of the issues that came up in the first panel. I'd like to uh, introduce our panelists. I mean, I could say a lot more about each of them, but in the uh, interest of time, I'm going to uh, walk through um, a rather brief introduction of, of each of the members. First, we have um, Claudia Mitchell-Kernan, who's uh, currently Vice Chancellor, Graduate Studies, uh, Dean, UCLA Graduate Division. She was also director of the Bunch Center, which was then the, the Center for Afro-American Studies between 1976 and 1989, uh, today our longest serving director. Uh, next we have M. Belinda Tucker. We're not going in any order on the, on the panel, so you can raise your hands or look at their signs. We have M. Belinda Tucker, Associate Dean, UCLA Graduate Division, who served as interim director of the Bunch Center from 1989 to 1991. We have Richard Yarborough at the far end, um, Associate Professor, UCLA English Department, um, who served as director of the Bunch Center from 1997 uh, to 2001. Uh, he was my immediate predecessor. And then we have Alva Moore Stevenson, Former student at UCLA in, in the years again? 77 uh, to 78, 79 to 80, and 99 to 2002. Okay, and, and one of the reasons we were excited that she could join us in this panel is because of the long role she's played um, at the um, UCLA Center for Oral History and the work that they have done with the center, um, some of which um, relates to uh, oral histories and other projects that people have alluded to um, on, the, on the previous panel. And last but not least, we have uh, Mandla Kaise, um, who was a student here at UCLA from 1983 to 1987? Is Actually, that right? 78 to 81 and 85 to 87. Okay, so some of that's right. Uh, who's also been very active with the center over, those, over the years since then. I mean, it seems like he never leaves UCLA. And he's been um, certainly um, active since I've been here as director in terms of some of the community outreach initiatives we have going on at the center. Claudia Mitchell-Kernan. Thank you very much, Darnell, and uh, it's a pleasure to have a chance to offer a few reflections on my own experiences with the Center for African American Studies, now the Bunch Center, and uh, also in my um, somewhat newer role as uh, Vice Chancellor and Dean of Graduate Studies, a position that I moved into from the Directorship of African American Studies. Um, I was hired on this campus in uh, 1973. I didn't actually show up until 1974. And my political socialization had really taken place in the context of uh, UC Berkeley, uh, the free speech movement, uh, and the anti-Vietnam movement. Um, from Berkeley, uh, I went to Harvard, which was going through a, the, sort of the, a number of... Um, the same kinds of issues and troubles that had uh, affected UCLA, including the birth uh, and um, uh, the operation of what was its Department of African American Studies. So my experience in coming to UCLA in 1974 was one where UCLA seemed to be extraordinarily subdued 
in contrast to what I had experienced at UC Berkeley and to a certain extent what I had experienced at Harvard. And I didn't quite know why that was the case until um, uh, we had, um, uh, in 1974, the first review of the Center for African American Studies, which looked past the looked over the previous five years um, and offered some assessments and offered some recommendations about um, moving ahead. And uh, in reading that review, it wasn't a very long review. Um, uh, I think it was a review that upset most of us uh, who were involved because it it said that the Center for African American Studies, not only the Center for African American Studies, but all of the ethnic studies centers were drifting. Well, if one considers the huge amount of energy uh, that had been invested in the establishment of these centers, um, the fact that um, their establishment did not really occur in an entirely welcoming environment, so there was a sort of exhaustion, it seemed to me, that had set in but from uh, on the part of many of the players, uh, and there was um, a sense that something new needed to occur in order to um, to fully um, or to begin to fully realize what had been a very visionary uh, platform for development. Uh, and and as a matter of fact, I continue to feel that it is visionary and remains relevant 40 years later. Uh, what the uh, students who were so involved um, in the establishment of this center uh, thought about what the center should do uh, turns out to be, in, in many aspects of it, viable, uh, m very viable 40 years later. But the, it seems to me the, the, the real uh, movement began um, as it begins in every field with the appointment of faculty who had some measure of responsibility toward this center. Up until that time, uh, there had been um, short-term uh, leadership and directorships a year um, here, a year there, and there are really interesting and complicated stories about why that was the case. Um, um, uh, but the notion that the center should have their own faculty uh, uh, was taking root, and so I consider uh, the year 1977 a real watershed year because this was a year that each of the centers was awarded a number of faculty FTEs. On the basis of those faculty FTEs, there were faculty appointments in African American studies, and to me, that begins a, a really new period. Um, Robert Hill, who joined us from um, Northwestern, um, uh, Pierre Michel Fontaine, who joined us uh, from uh, Cornell, um, um, Melvin Oliver, who was just completing his doctoral uh, degree, and Halford Fairchild, who had recently completed his doctoral degree at the uh, University of Michigan. And then I think maybe about uh, a year after that first group came in, uh, Richard Yarbrough was appointed in the Department of English. Uh, I think those years between 1977 and I'd say 1982 or three were um, periods of enormous energy within the center. 
um, we we worked very very effectively together. Not that we didn't have our disagreements um, um, and occasionally a rupture here and there. Um, this is, after all, an area, a subject. Uh, it deals with issues that are very, very close to where people live. And uh, that from time to time, it turns out that uh, there are tensions around uh, which way to go. Uh, it shouldn't be surprising. But our new faculty came in and really put their shoulders to the wheel, uh, and we worked together uh, to establish a new baccalaureate program, uh, and that came into existence uh, in this period. A master's program in African American studies, which also came in, into existence in this period. Uh, a regular system of RFPs for faculty and, and uh, students to submit proposals for research. We were, after all, a research center. Um, the publication of uh, monographs and books um, on a regular basis. Uh, and uh, perhaps um, the establishment of a center as perhaps one of the first, which really had uh, a hemispheric perspective rather than a U.S. perspective. So we, we, we came into this with, with a notion of the African-American experience being one which could greatly benefit from comparative approaches. Uh, we... we uh, brought faculty in from different areas of the diaspora, uh, and we mounted our curriculum and we mounted our re research uh, on that basis. Um, the students uh, have always, I think, with respect to this center and also with respect to the other ethnic studies centers, they, they have consistently been a motivating force. Uh, in terms of what we have tried to achieve. They've also been um, historically a catalyst in, in a way that is really quite extraordinary for academic programs. You will, you will not find uh, any other academic programs on this campus where uh, there was a true student initiative um, uh, associated with their establishment. Students didn't do it by themselves, of course, but they were really a force. Um, um, as we have um, sort of moved through the years, it, it seems to me that we have um, established a set of programs um, that allow us to do the full range of things that one does in a university. Um, teaching, uh, the conduct of research, um, um, contributions of new knowledge, and we've really gotten quite good at it. We've also, uh, I think, gotten rather good at securing funding for our programs uh, uh, extramurally. And again, I look at the period um, uh, of the late 70s and early 80s as a critical period uh, in building that capacity. Also during that period, we, we tried to um, uh, recruit another f uh, uh, individual from the University of Michigan uh, as a faculty member, and uh, she turned us down, uh, but did say that what she'd like to do would be to come to UCLA and work directly in the Center for African American Studies. Uh, and that was a very, very important uh, move uh, in terms of 
my leadership and in terms of my role today. Uh, as um, for many years, she was uh, associate director for research in the center, uh, and then um, uh, later uh, has agreed to take on a role as chair of the executive committee of the Institute of American Cultures. We haven't said much about that institute, but it has been associated with the four ethnic studies centers since the beginning. And like the centers, it had, a, it had a, some rough years in establishing itself, um, but by um, the mid-1970s, uh, it was beginning to shake shape as a support system for the four ethnic studies centers. Uh, it was um, operated by an executive committee consisting of faculty members at large and also uh, faculty uh, um, directors of the, of the centers and a chair who over the years have, has been very important. There have only been three chairs of the Institute of American Cultures during my 35 years here, and they've been uh, Norris Hunley, who is a historian, um, Shirley Hune, uh, who joined us from um, New York uh, in uh, the early 90s and served uh, for over a decade, and now uh, Belinda Tucker, who currently serves as a chair of that executive committee. Um, from the point of view of, I mean, this is very long, and I'm sorry, but from the point of view of, um, of my role, uh, my accidental role as the individual to whom the ethnic studies reported, um, uh, I'll have just a few things to say. Um, prior to the time that the uh, ethnic studies centers uh, came under, uh, came into my portfolio, uh, they had been uh, reporting to the Vice Chancellor for Research, whose name was Albert Barber. Um, I feel that we have been fortunate over the years to have the opportunity to work with a number of administrators who have been very supportive of the centers and who've had uh, you know, a certain amount of sensitivity to the kinds of issues that we have uh, had to confront in the larger university. Uh, I certainly count Chuck Young among those. I account I count C.Z. Wilson as among those. Uh, Al Barber uh, was also there. So when he retired in 1992, um, the centers were put into my portfolio. Uh, I did not have um, a, a specific set of objectives for my role as uh, um, vice chancellor in relationship to the centers, not nearly as, as specific as my sense of what I wanted to do was when I uh, assumed the directorship of the African American Studies Center. I was very, very clear on what I wanted to do there. I, I, I really uh, had an ambition for the center to make a difference on this campus. Uh, I saw the center in national perspective, and I saw the center in international perspective. And I think we largely achieved uh, some of those goals. In, in the later role, uh, I saw myself as trying to be the kind of supportive um, vice chancellor that I had been privileged to enjoy and the other ethnic studies centers have been privileged to enjoy since the late 60s and early 70s. And what do I mean by that? Supportive, uh, that means finding the resources to allow the centers to operate their programs and to expand their programs. 
uh, being there to run the kind of interference that has been necessary over the course of many years to ensure uh, that their interests are well served by academic policies, uh, well served by uh, decisions that are being taken in key places like the Chancellor's Office, uh, and um, also being, um, I think, uh, a friend uh, and uh, an individual who really has a profound appreciation for the kind of work that they, that they do, all of them, from um, uh, African American studies to Asian American studies, uh, American Indian studies, uh, and uh, Chicano studies. They started off with roughly the same template, uh, and they have evolved in somewhat different ways, but they have made their marks generally in, in many of, of uh, the same areas. You can look at one center and see that its identity has been shaped much more by its work in the arts. In the case of African American studies, it's been shaped much more by work in the uh, humanities and uh, in the social sciences. Another has been profoundly shaped by uh, our general campus professional schools uh, with very, very uh, strong outreach programs. All of these things seem to me to have given the centers a certain vitality uh, and make them of continuing relevance to um, a campus like UCLA. Um, over these, you know, sort of my 35 years, we've had um, uh, sort of certainly at least every five years, we've, we've thought um, uh, some about the past and the future, and every 10 years, we probably thought uh, a lot about uh, the future. And um, there have been times when the question has been raised about the continuing relevance of African American studies in the American Academy. Uh, and it seems to me um, uh, it's, it's the right question to ask at some levels, but it's also um, if you have had the privilege, like most of us here, uh, of really uh, being a participant in delving into this, this subject matter, this is a history that is one of the most compelling in the world. And you don't have to go very far to get hooked. And that is really the thing, I think, that uh, keeps the center vital, uh, keeps the faculty energized, and keeps the students attracted uh, uh, to the programs of the center. Um, I, I, I can't speak with the same kind of, of uh, depth of understanding, although the other centers have reported for me to a long time. Um, uh, I did start off, as a matter of fact, at American Indian Studies uh, and did a master's uh, thesis in uh, American Indian Studies. I have worked in Central America. I've also worked in Asia. So I, I have looked in these, at these areas from the point of view of some of, my, some of the interests that I have but it's very, very hard to feel exactly the same kinds of connections um, uh, to uh, the broader kinds of communities that were the inspiration for these centers and which the centers continue to serve. I think that there is nothing that, that, that is more important. I think um, education is for life, okay? 
uh, and if you are being provided an education that does not allow you to um, to make a contribution uh, to the community you belong to, the society you belong to, and lately, uh, you know, the globe, then I think your education has really been deficient. And um, um, the relevance of the kinds of things that are done uh, within the Center for African American Studies very much, I think, uh, continue. And we continue in a somewhat different way because of our our very, very different history of, of, of struggling against um, deep, deep, deep and profound inequality in this society. Um, I, it's, it's, it's hard, I think, for new generations to fully understand what a lot of people in this room have experienced. Uh, and, I mean, it's not like... Like future, like past generations of African Americans, we don't go around whining about, oh, you know, we got uh, some licks here, we got some licks there. Yeah, we got them. Uh, and I'm sure that this generation is also taking its licks. But that, that those struggles against inequality, that that those contributions to knowledge, um, uh, that help us to overcome. Uh, the inequality that uh, we have inherited in this society, and not only in this society, in the world, because uh, you know the forces of imperialism and colonialism have impacted uh, black people world over, populations in Africa, populations in the Caribbean, and populations in South America. So as we look to our situation and improving it, um, we can also, I think, take some lessons from the experiences of uh, our ancestors, uh, both um, uh, on this and the other side of the Atlantic, and our brothers and sisters uh, in the Caribbean and South America. Thank you. Good. Thank you. <clears throat> Belinda, why don't you, um, why don't you uh, oh. pick up where she left off? Okay, I was prepared to sit and listen to what Mona was going to say from the other side, but uh, thank you. Uh, as as Claudia alluded to, I actually came. I think you said mid '80s, but actually I came in 1978. Right. right? I thought I said '78, but well, I, but yes. you know. I know, I know. As somebody said on the earlier panel, <laughs> yeah. it's hard to keep track of the years anymore. But I came in 1978, when I think about that, 32 years ago. Uh, and what's good about being on a panel like this is that there are so many people who were here long before I was that I don't feel quite as old as I would if I were talking to a group of students. <laughs> Plenty of people with greater experience here. Uh, and I, I was looking for a faculty job and, and was so impressed with uh, the activities of the center. But really, actually, it was the potential of the center and, of course, the center director at the time, Claudia Mitchell-Kernan, that convinced me that there is no better place to be than a research center like this one, and there really wasn't any other like it at UCLA. Now, the fact that I was coming from... Uh, what, six, no, eight years, was it, at the University of Michigan, and before then, four years at the University of Chicago, where uh, the eight climate below. was not quite as hospitable, you know, certainly played a role, but uh, it was, uh, what I discovered was 
you know, the richness of the experience in, in this kind of center was, could not be paralleled in any uh, traditional disciplinary department. When you think about the, the, the kinds of people who regularly came through the center, people I never would have had an opportunity to meet in life, St. Clair Drake, you know, all the, the poets, the writers, the scientists who came through that center, the musicians, uh, you know, I, I could not have had a, a richer experience, I think, anywhere on earth. Uh, you know, I, I just want to mention a, a, a few other things. Since, since our periods overlapped, I don't want to, you know, rehash almost what... Uh, perfectly. Almost perfectly, right. But uh, when Claudia assumed the, the vice chancellorship, then I became, you know, an interim director. And I do want to highlight, like, some of the things that took place. But uh, I think I also want to focus on, uh, on a few things that um, uh, Claudia didn't mention. Um, uh, the previous panel in, uh, uh, mentioned, uh, you know, some of the uh, interesting internal struggles that uh, that took place. Uh, Claudia didn't mention that when she became director, uh, there is some who didn't think that a woman should be directing an Afro American Study Center. Uh, and a and they group, came packing. Yes, the, a, a group of big fellas came by to visit her to let her know that <laughs> this didn't seem right. <laughs> that. <laughs> she didn't have the Thunderbird to pull out, but <laughs> so you know, it, 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 think we've come a long way. We have come a long way, and I want to mention that uh, there were some high times in between. Uh, we put on the very first reggae festival ever to be held at UCLA. Fourteen thousand people. <sighs> Now it's a continuing. Baruka, yeah, Tuts, right. Yeah, everybody <laughs> yeah. Uh, was there, uh, and uh, you know, but the activity, the the process of putting it on, I thought was going to run Claudia out, like uh, Franklin Murphy saying, "I'm out of here." I thought she was going to be out of here. Almost. Uh, almost. Yes. Uh, uh, and let me mention just one more interesting part of the the high times. Uh, Bob Marley came. Uh, and a group of students wanted to uh, film an interview with Bob Marley. And for some reason, I became the go-between between between Marley's people and the students. Quaker Lynn, in fact, was leading the, uh, some of you may know, leading the group of, uh, let's say, ethnographic interviewers, uh, filmmakers. uh, And Neville Garrett, who uh, some of you may know of, who did all the album art for Marley and... uh, um, you know, I guess helped produce a number of their albums, came to my office to negotiate the terms by which this interview of Bob Marley and, uh, and um, the Whalers and, uh, you know, the group of women who were with him at that time would take place and when it would take place. And to feel comfortable, he sat back in my office in Kimball Hall and lit up the biggest spliff I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. Interesting history. I mean, when Malefi's story about the T birds made it, it brought it all back. And I thought, okay, is, what's the headline going to be tomorrow? Right? If anybody ever discovers what's going in, we got the interview, the, the film somewhere, but uh, you know, I must say, I don't think I would have had these experiences uh, in, a, in a traditional disciplinary department. 
Uh, by the time I uh, assumed the directorship in 1989, uh, I have to say, you know, this really, it was the golden years. Now, you know, from, from this perspective, I realized that. At the time, it didn't seem like the golden years. No. But now that I look back, uh, it really was. We had a critical mass of faculty. We had a critical mass of students. It was, it was a, 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 those times, I think, when we must have had a couple thousand students on mm-hmm. campus. Uh, I had learned, you know, really from a... a, a an administrative master. I had been able to, to work in that center for 10 years uh, and learn uh, a lot about uh, how one goes about administering that kind of unit. Uh, we, the foundation had been laid by all the people who had presented in the previous panel, uh, by Claudia Mitchell Kernan. Uh, these centers were, I think by that time, you know, kind of well-ordered machines. Uh, We got research funding. uh, We got conference funding that allowed us to really begin to address some critical issues. And that's what I think uh, the genesis of these centers was, that we would be doing research. They were set up as research centers in the service of communities. Uh, We put on some major conferences. We put on, in, 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 I think, 91, a conference called uh, a war on drugs or a war on the black community. Something we're talking about now, but we were talking about in 1990. Uh, Sylvester Monroe of Time Magazine was presenting. We had uh, Carl Douglas, who was working with Johnny Carson at the time. Um, Johnny Carson, Johnny Cochran at the time, uh, presenting on that panel from his perspective uh, about you know how uh, our um, arrest policies, how our uh, the changes in laws had, had really sent us down a path uh, of seemingly no return. And today we see the fruits of, of, that, um, of those uh, mistaken policies. Uh, we put on a, a national conference on the decline of marriage among African Americans, uh, causes and consequences. And we wrote a book that uh, is used in countless courses around the country. But by that time, um, we were able to do a lot of things that, that were just germs, I think, uh, in, in, the, in the heads of the people who helped put together that center. It, it was really uh, uh, a meaningful possibility by the time uh, I assumed the directorship. Uh, I mean, there was still point of uh, critical debate. I mean, our diaspora focus which, you know, was, was integral to our work, was still a point of great uh, debate. Uh, there were people who thought, well, how can a Center for African American Studies do research on the Caribbean or South America? I mean, they, 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 they challenged us about uh, diluting, you know, our focus. Uh, empirical research at the time was controversial. There were people who did not think that this was the appropriate way to go about examining problems. Uh, so it, we were constantly kind of fighting these internal battles. But, you know, now that I look back, you know, those really were uh, some golden, golden years. Yeah. One of the things we should note about this period, the 1980s, it really was a, a high watermark at UCLA in many ways for, for black people. Mm-hmm. In fact, if you look at the data, um, Los Angeles County, the population, um, the black share peaked at 12% uh, in the 1980 census. Um, it's down to about 9% today by comparison. Wow. Uh, in 1985, uh, black freshmen, um, the enrollment peaked at UCLA, nearly 400 students. Mm. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that a little bit later, you know, in terms of what's happened since then to black students. But uh, suffice to say, shortly thereafter, black freshman enrollment uh, began to steady decline. They hit a nadir really in, in 2006 when less than 100 um, African-American freshmen enrolled here. So I, I think one of the things that um, I want to kind of keep in the background as we move forward is 
how these demographic changes and political changes right. throughout this period, and this was a pivotal transition, I think, which is right. one of the reasons we broke the panel up this way, um, how those affected the center and right. what the center did, the way it was perceived, and the way it functioned on campus. Mm -hmm. And with that, um, let me uh, bring Mandela Kaise in, who was, a, who was a student in the 1980s, and get that perspective on what role the center played. Uh, thank you, Darnell. And uh, I, I really am uh, uh, pleased and uh, honored to be sharing the, the podium, particularly with uh, the three uh, former directors of the center that I had the opportunity to personally interact with uh, over the years uh, in my work with UCLA. Uh, Darnell mentioned that uh, it seems that I have never left UCLA. He really doesn't have any idea of how far that goes back because when I came to uh, Los Angeles from Chicago when my mom uh, brought my brother and I here. Uh, she was actually on the staff at UCLA in the in Powell Library working in special, special collections and that was my first exposure to UCLA at nine years old uh, coming to the campus, especially in the summers while she was working. We would spend all day running up and down the campus. Uh, I don't want to think back what that was like for her, but uh, it was great for us. Um, so I, I have had a long association with UCLA. Uh, I want to uh, point out a couple other things uh, about myself that weren't in the program uh, because uh, really my association with UCLA and the center has informed virtually everything I've done uh, in my life since that time. Uh, I was also a uh, chairperson of uh, the Black Student Alliance in 1986, uh, and I hope to bring a couple of uh, issues to the table relevant to the center's history that maybe haven't been uh, delved into as much uh, by the previous panel or uh, up to this point uh, that were relevant during the time that I was uh, chairperson of the Black Student Alliance. Uh, I also helped to, uh, with a group of student colleagues, uh, found and, and develop uh, what may be known as the, the only, well, certainly the first complex of student-run uh, retention centers, uh, retention pro uh, programs. There's now a retention center here on campus uh, with retention programs for student support that are run totally by students. And it is the first campus in the country to establish such student-run retention uh, projects. And that retention center is kind of a, a model for other campuses. There are now similar retention centers at uh, eight of the 10 UC campuses. And I think that's very relevant as well uh, because the mistake on my bio of me being a student from 1983 to 1987 has to do with my own challenges with retention. I actually came to UCLA in 1978. Uh, I took time off in 1981. Actually, the School of Engineering here insisted that I take some time off. Uh, and uh, I returned in 1985 and finished up with a degree in economics. But I'm sure that I, and certainly my, my fellow students in the School of Engineering would uh, verify the fact that I had to have been the engineering student who took the most Afro-American studies classes uh, out, of, out of all of my, my, my peers there, which may have had to do, a lot to do with my transition out of engineering. Uh, but I was absolutely captivated from a freshman summer program. I took uh, a class on black philosophical thought with Professor Boxel in the summer of 1978 and just could not uh, continue a single quarter without an Afro-American studies class somewhere uh, in my schedule of classes uh, simply because of the impact that it had on me and many other students during that time. 
Uh, but I mentioned the tie to retention uh, because I think one of the contradictions to uh, the, uh, the uh, statistic that Darnell talked about uh, in terms of 1985 being the high point of student enrollment at UCLA uh, has to do with the fact that 1985 was also uh, the low point in terms of UCLA's graduation rate for African-American students. We actually got data at that time in 1985 uh, that said that the entering freshman class of 1980, uh, by the time 1985 had come around, only 22% or one in five of them had graduated, and that's in five years. Uh, it was anticipated that maybe another 10% would graduate subsequent to that. Uh, as I did, come back, finish up later on. But there was no data in terms of what happened with that other 70% of African-American students. Now, this was absolutely alarming, obviously, to us as students, and it created a whole movement around student retention that took place in those late 80s. And I think it's relevant to the history of the center because one of the things that we found to be true was that African-American studies classes were a core component of the campus climate that was talked about earlier that facilitates the adjustment of students to the university environment and allows them to gain some focus and to uh, really, in many cases, figure out what they want to do with their lives professionally uh, and uh, provided that kind of supportive environment, that contact with faculty that kind of facilitated the development and the adjustment that was talked about earlier. I think the other component of that, uh, when I was a chairperson, we were involved in a campaign that Claudia might remember, or Dr. Yarborough might remember it as well, a campaign for faculty tenure. It was a very critical time in the mid-80s for the tenure of African-American faculty, which is a critical point for the center. It's a critical point in terms of the, the whole uh, significance of bringing black faculty to campus. Tenure's the issue. Tenure, the, 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 you know, faculty gaining tenure and having a permanent place and role on campus is the entire issue. So I think that that uh, issue of faculty tenure is critically important, and I think that time is critically important because so many of the, the great faculty that we had at UCLA at that time gained tenure during that period. And in terms of them being available to students, being able to, to provide that supportive environment, I mean, I cannot... Uh, many of the students I went to, to uh, school with, uh, you know, we just have all of these rich stories about our engagement, our relationships with Hal Fairchild and Dr. Yarborough and the different African-American faculty that we were able to uh, not only take courses with but develop relationships with, uh, be mentored by, and be guided by. So I think the whole question of uh, retention is important because I think the, the center's value and the appreciation of the center's value, not only by the campus, but by black students themselves. I think another thing that people are certainly aware of is the, the fact that in the 80s, you had students who were not necessarily aware of the value of African-American studies courses coming to campus. They were not exactly uh, necessarily drawn to those courses. And there was a lot of talk about how do we get black students to take black studies courses? And this became a critical strategy for us in our retention work, we actually developed a system of getting African-American freshmen to enroll in certain African-American studies classes in their first year. We actually had a, a huge conflict with uh, the College of Letters and Science, the orientation office. The orientation office has a huge program where they kind of script out what, what students should take in four years. 
uh, and what courses they should take. And of course, the African American Studies classes were not a major part of that script. Uh, and we felt that, that that script was part of the reason why so many students were dropping out. So we scripted out, you know, we, we, we did battle with the orientation office. We rewrote students' first year plan and included African American studies courses in that first year plan so that they could adjust, uh, develop relationships with African American peers, find a supportive environment in their first year uh, because the first year is the critical year for retention. Um, but I think for us, African American studies was a critical part of that retention strategy of the process of retention that we were able to develop for our students. And uh, black faculty and faculty tenure was certainly another important part of that. But I, I would love to, uh, to talk more about uh, how uh, that process of uh, matriculation, the role of African American studies courses in the center in the matriculation and retention of students, you know, how important that role is uh, in the further discussion. Okay. Thanks, Manla. Um, let's continue with Alva. Alva, you've um, occupied an interesting position. You know, you were both a student here for many years, but also you've worked for the Center for Oral History Research. And as you know, that center has conducted some very interesting oral histories about African-American figures um, in Los Angeles. Um, and also that work has informed a lot of the work we do at the center. Can you talk about your interactions with the center in that capacity as well as um, okay. your, sure. your time here as a student? I'm going to begin by talking uh, about my first position here at the university. I graduated in 1980 with a BA in English and began a position in the Department of Special Collections. And it would be there in those four years that um, I would uh, first of all meet Oscar Sims. Mm -hmm who was the bibliographer responsible for purchasing um, African-American materials for the library. And he's largely responsible for most of the major African-American collections here. Meeting him and working with an exhibit in 1983 on African-American pioneers of achievement uh, would, I think, inform later uh, what my mission would be in the oral history program. The second thing would be my um, interactions with some of the few African-American collections existing at the time, the George P. Johnson Negro Film Collection, one of the major ones. Um, and one of the things I was doing since oral history was a part of special collections is I would feed these notes to the director of oral history with names of individuals that I thought needed to be interviewed. Uh, by the time Dale Trelevin, a uh, very forward-thinking individual, had, by the time he hired me in 1984, um, he was um, set to submit the first IAC grant in collaboration with the Bunch Center. And it would be the beginning of a long association with the center in which we had these IAC grants to interview uh, the history of African Americans in Los Angeles. And I think it would be safe to say that in 1984, there were no such efforts going on anywhere uh, to document our history in the city. So there were also two pivotal events that really underscored the urgency of beginning this effort. One was the death of H. Claude Hudson, uh, and that was after only one session of interviewing him, and the second was the death of Ruth Temple. So uh, during that period from the early 80s to the late 90s, uh, we got these grants in collaboration with the center to interview African-American artists, um, to interview individuals pivotal in the history of the Center for African-American Studies, 
and also black leadership in Los Angeles. And I think it would also be safe to say that these three series were springboards for many of the other series um, that we undertook, such as Jazz in Los Angeles, the Central Avenue Sound Series, um, interviews with black women activists, with black educators, and with black politicians. And the other thing that's really key to having effective oral histories is the interviewers. And this is where the center really came through in identifying African-American grad students. And this was something that was rather controversial, but Dale insisted on African-American grad students as interviewers uh, because he said that nobody would have a better chance of having the rapport and getting the information. And that certainly was borne out by the interviews. I should say those interviews are some of the most used uh, most requested in the Department of Special Collections. Uh, they've also been used in several books, uh, Doug Fleming's Bound for Freedom, Scott Brown's book on the US organization, and many others. And um, I also like to think that we've had some role in the center deciding many years later to have a Black LA initiative. And um, so that's all I'm going to say about that. I should say that um, I have left oral history, but I'm now in the Department of Special Collections where I'm hoping to um, bring, help Susan Anderson bring in more collections having to do with blacks in Los Angeles in addition to more oral histories. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about my time as a grad student here. And uh, this was a time between 1999 and 2002. Uh, my research and my thesis was on American-born Afro-Mexicans within the larger context of the history of blacks in Mexico. And the center uh, gave me the latitude to essentially explore a subject, um, American-born Afro-Mexicans, for which no research existed. And um, it was really um, a great time having that interaction with the center as a student. And um, also, I feel that um, at the time, as I said, there wasn't any research on it. By the time I completed my studies in 2002, the whole field of um, looking into the history of Afro-Mexicans and Afro-Latinos had just you know, really taken off. And I think I really credit the center for allowing me to do that research and to have some part in that. And since I graduated, I have... Um, really for the last, since 2002, uh, done presentations on that subject, really talking about uh, American-born Afro-Mexicans, which is my mother's side of the family, within this larger context, not only of blacks in Mexico, but of African-Americans who migrated to Mexico, also Afro-Mexicans that migrated north. Thank you, Alva. Uh, Richard? Thank you. Um, I, uh, when I was trying to figure out what I was going to say uh, this evening, I um, first of all decided that uh, it would be the most direct and honest thing to, to lead with by pointing out that if it weren't for the Center for African American Studies, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Um, I arrived here in the fall of 1979 when I went on the job market in late 1978 with a PhD in English. 
uh, coming to Los Angeles was the last thing on my radar. Um, I'd gotten my training in the Bay Area, so I had all of the stereotypes and biases um, of the Bay Area coming down to Los Angeles. Uh, however, the UCLA English Department was um, advertising. I had no idea about the history of the line. I didn't know about institutional FTE. I didn't know about the center. I knew it was connected to the center. Um, my job visit to campus took place around this time of year and exactly this kind of weather. Um, and uh, I gave my talk in English. It went fine. And the folks there were collegial and receptive, although the department was strikingly uh, homogeneous. Um, what I was unprepared for um, was the warmth and consideration that I encountered when I made my visit over to Campbell Hall. Um, to meet with the folks in the Center for African American Studies. Um, Claudia Mitchell Kernan was director at the time. Um, she set a tone which was unbelievable. Um, from Claudia to the staff members, uh, I don't know if Deborah Wilkes was working there, but I remember her name came up in the first panel. She was, I believe, there. Um, to the various faculty members and researchers like Belinda Tucker, uh, Melvin Oliver's name had come up, a name that I would want to throw in this mix that many of you know, Armstead Robinson, um, his name, the late Armstead Robinson, his name, he was here. There were many others. They made me feel more than welcome. When I just made my decision about where to pursue my career, um, I decided that I want to be part of this community. And that was probably the key decision, uh, even more than the weather, um, to come to UCLA. Um, so I just want to take this opportunity to make that public acknowledgement and to express my gratitude and appreciation uh, to Claudia and everyone else, um, because it obviously has been a long ride now. Um, over the course of my 30 years here, um, I, a couple snapshots came to mind. I just want to kind of s drop these out and then maybe end with a couple of issues that I, might be useful for us to touch on. Um, one thing that came to mind, and, and if you'd asked me to do this two weeks, I'd come up with a different list. These, this is what I thought of over the past 24 hours. Um, long conversations with underappreciated and remarkably knowledgeable people that you find, I was finding, I was stumbling over in my first couple of years here. Um, you mentioned Oscar Sims's name. Oscar Sims made such a difference in my life. Uh, there, were no, there was no one else working in black literature on campus. And Oscar um, basically knew every black book that had ever been written. And um, there was a f another senior presence in the library school, and I can't remember Marion Cobbs. Marion Cobbs. Yes. Uh, he and Oscar were obviously drinking buddies. And, yes. and um, Marion was someone else that I stumbled over. He wasn't a latter faculty member in terms of somebody that I would have as a colleague. But he, again, enriched and added texture and informed information uh, for me in that kind of community. I remember those moments vividly. Um, I remember the excitement uh, attending the center's major conference on black literature in 1983. Uh, as a junior faculty member, I was involved in putting that conference together. Um, Paul Marshall, I mean, you know, just the people who were coming was extraordinary. And I especially remember, uh, yeah, I especially remember a lunch luncheon we had, I believe it was an African food caterer, and Amir Baraka was sitting on one side of the table, and a young um, but cocky Henry Louis Gates was sitting <laughs> on the other side of the table, and they were playfully, having a playfully contentious exchange during one of the breaks, um, and I think in retrospect it may or may not have been playful. Um, 
I remember listening to Kenny Burrell uh, lead his group of uh, jazz musicians through Christmas songs at one of the center's benefit concerts at the long, now, now unfortunately departed jazz bakery in, in Culver City. Uh, this is something that happened when I was director. Um, I re- recall, and this is something that has taken place over a decade, participating in the center's Summer Humanities Institute, uh, a program that started when I was director w- that brings to UCLA advanced undergraduates, uh, mostly from HBCUs, uh, for a range of activities designed to prepare them for graduate school. And I still feel great pleasure and gratification when I see from afar that some of the students not only earn their PhDs, but they are now faculty members themselves. Um, This is one of the ways in which UCLA, the center, makes a difference, a real difference in the profession and in students' lives. Um, I was in the bleachers in Pauley Pavilion for one of those reggae shows. I remember seeing Toots and the Maytals and Third World, and the students here may not believe that we had concerts in Pauley Pavilion. Uh, They they stopped that (laughs) relatively soon, but we had, it was remarkable I didn't even, I didn't have a full appreciation as I was seeing listen to music, all the effort that went into it, but I knew that it had been created by the center. I also remember a much smaller moment of having the good fortune of having lunch with a man that some of you may know or certainly have heard of, a center supporter, John Densmore, a former drummer with the, the group The Doors, um, who created a... Um, a Densmore scholarship uh, to support African American studies students because he felt like his own musical career depended so much upon the um, traditions of African American music. And at that lunch, I was sitting there, and and the woman who had the student who had won that award that year was a music uh, student. And just sitting back, listening to their mutual appreciation of music, the way they were bonding over over. Uh, the shared appreciation of black music, his interest in her, her appreciation for what he he was providing in terms of funding, uh, it was a magical moment for me and I, as, as director, and I was very fortunate to be able to have that. And then, last but not least, um, becoming interim director, an interim position that lasted five years. Um, <laughs> becoming, it ended happily, though, with Darnell <laughs> taking this... <laughs> burden from my my (laughs) disintegrating shoulders Um, but I became interim director only months after the passage of Prop 209 Um, and also relatively uh, my um, uh, becoming director took place around the time that um, we got a new chancellor um, so there were a number of fundamental changes that had taken place around the status of African studies, the status of African studies, African American students, um, and for all of the challenges and dismay that accompanied the passage of 209, um, it was also gratifying to witness the mobilization of campus and off-campus forces um, in support of affirmative action, um, a struggle that has, is ongoing and that in which I'm proud to say that the center has um, played a key role. Um, that list could go on, but, but for me, those recollections were most useful in order to help me to identify um, some of the challenges that the center has faced and will continue to face and some of the accomplishments um, that our occasion today could help us to relive and maybe even learn from. And I'd like to end by just identifying a few of the issues that, that struck me, again, within the past you know, day or two um, that um, might be worth us thinking about. One is the central role that the center plays Um, has played and will continue to play in diversifying the faculty. This has been brought up, but I can't say enough that I would not have been added to the faculty uh, in English if it had not been the center's faculty line 
that was given to English and a collaborative search that ended with my presence here. Um, and the extent to which I've had an impact on certain issues, the presence of graduate students diversifying the English department, uh, could not have happened without the opportunity offered to me by, by the Center for African American Studies. Um, that's a role that can't be overstated. Um, Another is how can the center continue to enhance its role as the preeminent site for research into black Los Angeles. Um, and that's something that, that I know Darnell's close to Darnell's heart, and we've made great strides, and I think that that's the direction we can continue to go into. Um, for me, I also it made me think about the, um, sh the, the uh, ups and downs of the relationship over the years between the center and African-American studies students on campus. Um, and between the center and the black community more broadly in Southern California, something that at least from a faculty standpoint is absolutely crucial. Uh, because I can tell you that, and I think other faculty may share some of this, that um, had we continued going down the road of the disappearing black, graduate, black student on campus, that a number of us might have found someplace else to go. Um, I mean, I think that the university may not have realized how close they were to, to losing uh, faculty, but um, it says something about how I view my mission as a faculty member, and I think that's something that a number of faculty shared. Um, there's the challenge of developing what one might term the leadership pipeline in the field of African-American studies, both here at UCLA and elsewhere. Um, how do we generate the next generation of leaders, both as administrators, but also as um, uh, heads of departments and heads of programs and units? Um, the growing need to determine effective strategies for meeting fundraising uh, targets, and this is not a popular topic, but is one that when I became director was increasingly, insistently, um, uh, uh, pressed on me by the administration, and that is that units like the African American Studies Center need to develop funding, external funding, extramural funding, in order to develop its own mission. And that is something that is increasingly um, pressing. Um, we've talked about departmentalization. I think it's useful to think about the impact of the impending departmentalization of the African American Studies Program on the center, on the mission of the center, on the relationship of the center to UCLA. And then last but not least, I think that it's worth acknowledging the extent to which the center has directly or indirectly enabled the growth of whole fields of study here at UCLA, and I, the center will never get that kind of credit. But the extent to which um, the, the catchphrase of the past decade has been interdisciplinary studies, um, the, the Center for African Studies was doing interdisciplinary studies uh, back in the 70s and 80s, and the presence of faculty committed to interdisciplinary study has really made a difference in a range of departments that would like to think they have very little to do with African-American studies. Um, so I think that the, the, the nature of ch the changes that African-American studies has spawned um, go from um, administrative to student-related to graduate work to co collection development in terms of research resources um, to um, uh, theoretical developments in field, method methodological developments. Um, everywhere you turn at UCLA, you can see the um, results of the center, uh, center's presence. Um, thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.